Hello and welcome to Into the Basement. This is Jessica Hanna. And I'm Adrian Hanna. And tonight we're going to talk about Moida. Yeah, Moida is what we said tonight. And we'll get to why later. But as of right now, it's Moida instead of Murda. It's Moida time. Moida time. Um, hi. Yeah, it's been a bit. It's been a couple of months. Uh, I apologize for last month. We didn't didn't forget about you. We didn't forget about you. We just didn't really have a lot of time. In fact, I'm really surprised we had time this month. It's been crazy. But here we are. And tonight we're going to talk about a very, oh, very old murder. Those are always the good ones. Yeah. We're going to go back in time. We're going to go to a different country. back in time. We're also going to go to a different country for this one, Adrian. We're going to go to New Zealand. New Zealand. Not old Zealand. Not old Zealand. New Zealand. Uh, we're going to go to Christchurch, and the year is 1954. I always thought that was like a really weird name for for a town. Yeah? But it's like one of the biggest cities in New Zealand, as far as I know. I mean, there's only like three, so... Three cities? Three big cities. Oh. <laughs> I don't know for sure. I didn't look up New Zealand information. I just... <laughs> I don't know why Christchurch is called Christchurch. I just know that this murder happened in Christchurch, so... Okay. So, uh... And we're going to start out with the murder, because this is one that, even though we're going to delve into the murderers, you need to know what that this happened before we start, because you'll be wondering why. All right. So, June 22nd, 1954, in Christchurch, New Zealand. 1954. 1954. Cool. This is before Adrian's mother was born, and after mine. 16-year-old Pauline Parker and her 15-year-old friend, Juliet Hume, bashed the skull of Pauline's mother... Honora Nora Parker. We're going to call her Nora. We're not going to call her Honora. Okay. That was also, by the way, Jolly Jane's first name. Nora? Honora. Uh-huh. Honora. It's Honora. Oh, okay. That must have been a popular name at some point. I think so. Um, Sorry, we're going to go ahead and say that again. Bashed the skull of Pauline's mother, Honora, with half a brick while the three were on a walk in Victoria Park. Why half a brick? Because it was only half a brick. Bricks were bigger then. Okay. From what I'm gathering, from what I've seen, bricks were like, bricks weren't like that small brick you could hold in your hand. They were like big old, twice the things. size of that. Yeah. So after stopping at Victoria Park's tea room for some tea and soft drinks, the three went for a stroll down a secluded and brush filled path. A short time later, the girls reappeared at the tea room covered in blood. One girl's face splattered with blood and the others finely speckled is how it was described. The girls were screaming that Nora had been terribly hurt, was covered in blood, and that she was dead. Mummy has been hurt. It's mummy. She's terribly hurt. She's dead. When the caretaker's wife, the woman who basically ran the tea room, uh, asked where Pauline's mother was, the girls, Juliet in a panic and Pauline calm and pale, waved down the hill towards the bush. We're like, down there, down there. They begged not to have to go with, go and show them because they didn't want to see that again. Um, but said that she had slipped, fallen, and hit her head on a rock, her head bumping and banging as it fell. Okay. I want you guys to know exactly what they said because later on we'll get into what actually happened. They claimed they tried to pick her up but dropped her, and they were worried they'd hurt her further because her head had bounced a little further when they dropped her. Juliet she and- fell and hit her head. She fell and hit her head nine times. <laughs> More like 45 times. Um, Juliet in particular seemed to be worried about the blood on her hands and asked to be allowed to clean up. Out, out, damn spot. Agnes took the, the woman who 
who they ran up to was named Agnes Ritchie, took the girls to the, to her sink to wash up. And as she walked away, she found it very odd that the girls started to giggle and said, oh, isn't she nice? The caretaker, the husband of the woman who'd helped them out, grabbed a towel and a couple of guys and went down to find and see if they could help her. Because they weren't, they thought maybe sure. she's fine. If right. She just fell and they think she's dead. It's a, bunch, it's a couple of little girls that are screaming. Mm-hmm. When they th- what they found was very different from what the girls had described. About a quarter, quarter mile down the tr- rough track, uh, Nora lay on her back near a crickety bridge of wooden planks. Her legs splayed indecently, her head smashed and bloody. Her eyes were closed, but they were bulging, and her mouth was agape. Her face and hair were caked in blood, and blood, blood ran in streams down the track, about 12 feet. There was no rock under her head or anywhere near her that could be that could be the the reason she was hurt but a brick a half a brick lay about two feet from her head covered with hair and bloody those damn wild bricks always getting in the way oh they're crazy bricks they're just bopping around all over the place richie returned to the tea house this is the guy his name was kenneth richie returned to the tea house to call the police and asked the girls about the incident there was concern about her tripping on the bridge i don't know why they had seen her body they were like well, maybe she tripped on the bridge and fell. Um, no, it was the brick, guys. Um, but before the police could arrive, Juliet's father picked up the girls and whisked them away. Okay. That's suspicious. Juliet Hume. We're going to talk about each of these girls now okay. in the background. On October 28th, 1938, Juliet Hume was born in London to Henry and Hilda Hume. He was a math- mathematical physicist, and he had a very, and his wife was very glamorous and, you know, social climbing. Henry Hume studied under such names as Werner Heisenberg, who many of you might may know as the namesake of Heisenberg in the show Breaking Bad, or the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle, or the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle, exactly. But most of you will probably know him as, know Heisenberg from Breaking Bad. Most people don't know physics, physics as well as you do, babe. Yeah. Maybe they do. I don't know. But I mean, that's the, he discovered the root of quantum theory. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Um, well, uh, it was, I mean, the Heisenberg uncertainty, uncertainty pr- principle was very badly explained in uh, the first Jurassic Park movie when uh, um, Jeff Goldblum drops water on uh, Laura Dern's hand and asks her to predict which way the uh, the the droplet is going to go. He 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 calls it chaos theory, but it's it's really he's just badly explaining the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. All right, all right. So Henry Hilm had had he was a very important man at the time. Okay. He had many positions in the British government. He was at one time chief assistant to the astronomer Royal. Royal astronomer Royal. It's not Royal. It's not France. Um, and the it's head a royale with cheese. And the, and you might know a little bit more about this. He was he was the head of the degaussing section of the mine design department, where he and a group. Am I saying that right? Degaussing, dega, degaussing. It has like to do ing degaussing. D e g a u s s i n g. Yeah, degaussing. Okay, where he and a group of fifty others designed equipment that would protect ships from the bevy of German electromagnetic mines okay. that were devastating British ships. So uh, he also assisted, you might know this thing too, because you know a lot of the military stuff, um, Patrick Blackett's 
Blackett Circus Never heard um, of in devising a better way to protect convoys. He was also likely part of the Manhattan Project, and he was eventually he eventually became a scientific scientific advisor to Britain's Arab Ministry. Okay. So this is all the jobs that Juliet's father had. He was a very important man in the British government. Nice. Um, unlike her father, so this is during World War II as well. So this is like sure because we're talking 1954. So yeah, but we're I mean like he's, he's yeah, it's likely that he did a lot of cool stuff during World yeah, War II. Yeah, like the degaussing stuff, the Blackett Circus, that kind of stuff was all during World War II. So unfortunately, Juliet's war experience was very different and not quite so nice for her. Well, yeah, because dad was a big, important man, so he was too busy to deal with her. So no. she what, probably ended up in the whatever. Well, it's more than... It was, they lived in London. Okay, so she got shipped off to the country. No, and she didn't quite get shipped off to the country right away. That's okay. the problem. Her father was off and away, and her mother was also not really... She was a socialite. She was like a, you know, she was a party girl. But... A social climber. She likely loved her daughter. She didn't really coo over her or comfort her in any way or anything like that. Um, but because they were staying in London before the war began, in case there was any bombings, <coughs> um, Henry Holm purchased what is called an Anderson shelter. Um, we don't live in the UK, so we I'm not really familiar with this, but I think probably a lot of you, if you are in the UK, if you're listening, you probably might even have one in your backyard still. I don't know. Um, it was built for cover during any attack. So what they looked like was they were arched sheets of corrugated steel sunk into the ground. So maybe they aren't still, they're not permanent necessarily. Sandbags would then be stacked on top and around the entrance, and the whole thing was dug into into the soil. Okay. So... They weren't really built for a direct hit, but if you were like, if it hit your yard and you were in an Anderson shelter, you were fine, kind of a thing. You could take a blast of up to 250 kilograms, landing as close as 10 feet away. Kilotons? Kilogram bomb. 250 kilogram bomb. It would have been in kilotons. Thanks. You're welcome. So she was quite young when the Blitz started, because they were there for the Blitz. The Blitz started on September 7th, 1940, so she's not even two years old yet. Right. And it went on for about nine months. So... It was likely that she this messed her up, and actually, she what she um, got what is called bomb shock. Okay. So bomb shock is basically it's it's like t- PTSD for kids. Okay. So she would have nightmares that were it's probably just PTSD. Yeah. Um, her nightmares were super bad. She would wake up screaming, and like sorry. Uh, in in the in the in the U.S. I think around that time we called it shell shock. PTSD shell. was called shell shock, and so when a soldier had shell shock back then. It was just a different name for PTSD. I, so, won- I wonder if, like, it depends on what you were in. So if you were in, if you were in the Blitz, you were getting bombed. So they called it bomb shock. Probably. Yeah. If you were in, if you were getting shot at, you you called it shell shock because you were getting shelled at all the time. Well, yeah. I mean, what? I mean, or it's both, art, yeah. like artillery shells is yeah. where shell shock comes from, I think. But um, yeah. Well, it's also a difference in language. It's a, it's English on both sides of the pond, but we have different words for different things. So they probably just called it bomb shock. Yeah. And now, you know, clinically, it's turned into post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, so. And can you imagine being like a, like a two-year-old going, having nightmares? Well, like, I can't even imagine being a two-year-old, but yeah. That's, like, well, you're so little and you I, don't understand yeah. what's going on, but you know that everything is exploding around when, you. When it gets dark, dark out, there's loud noises and things explode. Yeah. That'd be 
ter- that'd be terrifying for for anybody. But like more so when you're so young that you don't understand how the world works yet. Exactly. Yeah. So obviously this experience probably affected her mental state for the rest of her life. Even if she didn't know it, in some ways it affected her, you know? Oh, for sure. Um, However, it wasn't only the Blitz that messed her up. It was during this time period that two incidences occurred that would change her future and likely cause great distrust between her and her mother. Okay. So the first incident occurred um, in 1944 because what happened in England is that the Blitz lasted nine months, but then they, they... still periodically were bombed by the Germans. Right. So it, was, it wasn't it was an easy, like, oh, the Blitz is over, so now we can all go back to living our regular lives. Like, that was still any time now. There might be a, an attack. So in 1944, her mother was pregnant with her brother, about eight months pregnant with her brother. Okay. Um, bombing was, of course, still occurring in London. And on one particular snow... How, how old was she at this point? Uh, 1944, we're talking... Um, like... And it's early. We're talking early. So it's like her, her, she's born in October. So she's about five. Okay. She's five at this time. So bombing was, okay, we already said that, but it was a snowy night and bombs began to fall. It was like February or something like that. Hilda and Juliet ran down to, ran down to their Anderson shelter, which was located in their garden. Now, what Hilda would do was Hilda would run to the shelter first and then she would, when she thought it was safe for her daughter to go, she would, you know, like um, signal for her to, to run to okay. her. So Hilda ran to the Anderson shelter and tried to get in, but she was so pregnant. These, these must have been very small openings. Uh-huh. She was so pregnant, she got stuck in the entrance, which is very funny if there wasn't bombs all over the place. Right. And Juliet was outside, obviously laying in the bush, in a, in a, under a bush, trying to not get bombed. Es- essentially exposed. Essentially exposed in the snow. So she's getting exposed to both bombs and s- cold, yeah. um, waiting for her mother to call her. Now, during the incident, Juliet, of course, contracted pneumonia because, of course, right. that terrible situation. Laying would... in a bush in the snow. Yeah. In a compromised situation yeah with with bomb dust all over the place too so it's not you know just the cold it's everything so and her mother was told that both of her lungs had shadows which is i think when you have pneumonia there's a shadow in your lung i don't really know but that they said should send juliet to a warmer climate to save her life which is a good thing right Mm -hmm. you'd think and also get her the fuck out of london you know um but before they could do that jonathan was born her little brother obviously that's what a jerk (laughs) juliet seemed to be okay with him uh, visiting him and her mother in the hospital, getting to hold them for the first time. She thought he was great. She was about five and a half. And I think probably like that's a good age to have a second child when a kid is five and a half because they can help you and they're excited about it. They think it's like a little doll. They're not nearly as, you know, they don't take it nearly as personal that there's another baby, that kind of thing. I don't know. I don't know. I don't have kids. I don't know. However, her mother, who was just the worst, I'm going to really rag on Hilda. In this entire episode because I don't oh, care. With a name like Hilda. I don't care for her at all. Um, she got sick. She didn't feel good. And Henry, her husband, was at work or he was overseas or something. She went back to the hospital with Jonathan and left her five and a half year old daughter home alone while she was asleep. Oh, she didn't wake her up to say, we'll be right back, honey. She just fucking left her in the middle of the night. With no buddy there. 
So when Juliet woke up, she found herself all alone and then didn't see her mother for days. I don't think... Wow. I don't think she was home alone the whole time. Right. But she woke up to no parents. Right. It must have been fucking frightening. No doubt. I mean, I I was going to say that, like... That seems par for the course for the times. I mean, like, you know, you always hear people joking about, like, when when they were younger, like, laying in the back of of a station wagon with no seatbelts and stuff. And so, like, there was that very hands-off parenting situation. But that seems negligent even for the time. I agree. Um, one of the things, because Hilda is a bit more talkative to the press than maybe a mother whose daughter murdered someone should be. Um, She talked a lot about Juliet's childhood and things like that. And so she described Juliet as a willful child. Okay. Um, And willful is used is a word for being a shit. She was a shithead child. That's basically what they're saying. She resisted discipline and she lived in a fantasy world. Now this is a thing we're going to hear over and over and over again about both of these girls. I have opinions about it right now. When you're little like this, I don't know that it's a problem when they're, I don't think it's a problem at all, but being, being annoyed that your four-year-old or five-year-old likes to play fairy games and do fantasy stuff and likes, it doesn't really want to come out of it and wants to keep playing. Uh That's, that's pretty normal. I think especially at like five years old. Yeah. That's not, I, I mean, she didn't listen to her mom, but a lot of kids don't listen to their mom, especially when they're, when they don't trust her. I don't think she trusted her. I think her mom walked away, left her alone. And from then on, she was like, fuck off. Right. So anyway, so I imagine that the trouble that, that she had, that, that Hilda had with Juliet made the decision to send her away because of her lungs Uh that much easier. She's like, oh, she's tough to deal with. I don't really want to deal with her. Her brother's easy or fuck it. Let's send her away. So they sent her to Barbados, which... When you said they were going to send her to warmer climates, I immediately thought, oh, cool. They sent her to Jamaica. And I was like, no, they probably sent her somewhere else. Pretty much. They sent her to Barbados. It's close enough. But they sent her in the care of a nurse. They didn't go with her. Right. They just sent her. Well, you know proper english parents yeah why wouldn't you um it's good for the economy (laughs) when she returned a couple years later she or a year later or whenever it was she was even more trouble but it is what it is um nurse probably heard you're not my real mom an awful lot during that time i either that or she or she had a great time and she didn't want to go home right but who knows mom is the worst so in 1947 henry's work with the war department had waned because the war was over right And he was getting a bit antsy. Um, And it was about that time when a proposal was enacted in New Zealand that each university should have a full-time rector. Now, I was like, I thought a rector was like the head of a church. Okay. But it's also the head of a university. It's like a president of a university. Well, I mean, it makes sense. Like, universities back in, like, medieval times were basically church places anyways. So the mix and match of titles and whatnot between the two... I guess would make sense. Yeah. So, I, I, I've never heard of that before either, but you know, I went to school in America. <laughs> so he, the, the rector would oversee the academics of the university, sit on the council as a chair of the professional board, and also represent the interests of the universities as a member of the Senate in New Zealand. So Holm was chosen as the rector for Canterbury college, which I think a lot of people have heard of, but the one located in Christchurch. So uh, Juliet's chest problems continued throughout 
her entire childhood. And so in the middle of 1947, she was no longer in Barbados, but she was in the Bahamas. So Rough childhood there. I know. <laughs> but the, at least then she was with friends of her parents. So she was with adults who, you know, had some sort of probably like non-medical. Right. Whatever towards her. So along with those friends, they moved to New Zealand, which was probably great for her chest. I'm sure that went to the decision to go to New Zealand. You know, we can actually have the whole family together. Right. But um, mom was like, "Ugh, the whole family together. Barf. (laughs) So along with the friends of the family, she moved to New Zealand in 1948. Um, Her parents joined and collected her in October of that same year. So she went early to New Zealand with the friends and then her parents didn't come until October. And by that point, they'd been apart for over a year. So this is a very, at this point, what we're seeing is is a family unit that is a little bit disjointed and not necessarily very close. So right Um, now when they got to New Zealand from, they were there for about seven years before six years before she, or five years, I should say, sorry, five years before she met Pauline. Um, But she was kind of like, Shifted around from school to school, not because of any disciplinary problems, just because I think whatever fit best for their scenario, their situation at the time. Um, and she ended up landing in uh, Christchurch's Girls Girls High, which I'll talk a little bit about later. Um, she, Juliet, had tested with an IQ of approximately 170. Okay. She's a brilliant kid. Um, she was described by many people as arrogant, unattainable, and dismissive. Which, I mean, if you were raised without any family most of your life, you were raised by a woman who wasn't really crazy about you and a father who was never there, that might be how you are, too. Yeah. Um, very few people impressed her, but everyone wanted to be her friend. She was just kind of one of... She was very pretty. Uh, she was tall and attractive. She was self-assured. Uh, she was gregarious and excited about the arts. So everything from sculpting to writing to movies. She, so people, people naturally wanted to be around her. You know, she's nice looking. She's sure it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. She's interesting, but she also doesn't give a shit about anybody else. So she's even more in- interesting because she's an enigma of some sort. You know, enigma. <laughs> but she was also quite taken with herself, um, and did not think of anyone as quite as good as her until she met Pauline. Pauline, Pauline Reaper Parker, or Parker oh. Reaper, whichever you want to say. That's just some foreshadowing right there. We are going... It's a it's a fucked up reason why she's got two different last names, but we'll get into it. So Pauline, we're going to call her Reaper for now, and then we'll get into why she's par- referred to as Parker later. So Pauline Yvonne Reaper was born on May 26, 1938 to Burton Honora Honor Reaper, the third of four children. Uh, her father, Bert, was a fishmonger, and her mother was a homemaker, and also a landlord to their at their house in Christchurch. Pauline had two sisters, an older older sister, Wendy, Wendy, who was by all accounts a well-adjusted person, and Rosemary, who was Down syndrome and living at a special facility for the mentally handicapped. They used to call Down syndrome people Mongols. Yep. It's really fucked up. But I guess maybe then it didn't seem as fucked because they didn't know what else to call people. Right. Now, the third child, because I said she was the third of four. You know, in, in like... A hundred years or so, they're going to look back at us and they're going to be like, Down can you believe syndrome. they called them Down syndrome? Yeah. How fucked up is that? <laughs> but the the first child that was born to them was actually stillborn. I don't know. and But she carried it, the baby to term. So it's one of those things where it's like, it is third of four, but it's really just second of three. Okay. But whatever. So they weren't wealthy. Um, oh, going back well, I to- I would imagine they wouldn't be wealthy if they had to pay to have one of their kids put up in a home. Yeah. 
Well, this is one of the things that I I kind of like about Pauline. Um, she adored her sister Rosemary, the child, right. the Don's sister. She they would visit her every week, and she just wanted she. They had fun together. They played games together. So this was like a this was from what I can tell a pretty like normal lower class lower middle they weren't too they weren't destitute or anything i mean he was sure. he had a job and they had renters and so they had a house that was big enough for renters and is this was like a normal i think what you would call like a lower middle class family sure um i haven't heard they're pretty salt of the earth i don't know if that's necessarily true but i will say that um the only thing that was controversial beyond sort of the regular stuff like nora and Pauline had a very abusive relationship okay. that we'll get into later. Um, but the really controversial thing about her parents that Pauline didn't know and they had told no one was that they had never been married. Okay. So this is this is the problem. So, okay, this is what I'm going to go on my first rant of the episode. Maybe, maybe it's, this, I don't know if it's the second one or not. Um, because they never, the reason they never married is because his father, their, her father left his first wife and never divorced her. Ah. So they, uh, he left her for Nora. He, he had two sons with that first wife. He left her, never married, and never divorced her. Maybe because he didn't want her to know where he was. I don't know. And collect child support or whatever. Um, never murdered her. Never murdered her. No, he didn't <laughs> murder her either. Never well, married her. Um, but the girls were all Reapers. R-I-E-P-E-R. When Pauline killed her mother, they found out that they that the parents weren't married and immediately started calling Nora by her maiden name Parker and then started calling Pauline Parker and to me I guess this isn't a rant I just think it's weird why is the daughter the mother's last name when the father is still the father I don't know there's probably some weird esoteric legal thing in play maybe I to me it's like children of unwed parents are required by law to be under to take the mother's the last, name. last name of the mother because then it's a, when the mother is shamed or something like that. to me know. well the thing is is that they don't they take a woman who's been brutally assaulted and murdered and they basically run stories about how she was a you know a husband stealer and you know like all the like living ma- in sin with the safety pen yeah and thank you and basically she becomes disrespected because of the fact that the life they chose was happy and yet they weren't married. So now she's dishonored. It didn't, it didn't conform with cultural norms. So therefore shun. Yeah. But she was killed. Right. Like stop, stop being disrespectful to this woman who was already disrespected in the worst possible way she could be disrespected by her right. own daughter. But anyway, so Pauline, so we'll get back to Pauline. So Pauline was actually referred to as Yvonne by her family. Okay. Um, I'm not entirely sure why. Maybe they just liked Yvonne better because that was her middle name. Um, she was a normal and average and healthy child, um, but sh- that changed just before she turned five. She developed osteomyelitis in her right leg. That doesn't sound good. So osteomyelitis is an f- infection of bone. Okay. So it isn't good. Right. Um, symptoms include pain in a specific bone with overlying redness, fever, and weakness. The disease of- often affects the long bones of the arms and legs in children. So. Yeah. In the early 1950s, before antibiotics were readily available, it was also life-threatening. So she spent nearly nine months in the hospital having this drained, 
um, and more than two years having to have it dressed daily, you know, like basic. And it's a miracle that she survived. It's a miracle she survived with only a scar from just below the knee to the ankle. It was completely cured within two years, which is wonderful. Right. Um, and then she had a slight but permanent and it's what they called scuffly limp. So it was like she she didn't really limp. She just kind of scuffled. Okay. Do you know what? Does that make sense? Like shuffled? Shuffled okay. is probably a better word. Um, she would also face continued pain and she would be unable to participate in sports and games. However, she enjoyed making models out of clay. She was particularly interested in horses. She liked art and writing and things like that. Um, now, Nora was known to be irritable and critical, particularly to Pauline, who was a little bit less excited about life than Wendy, who was had lived a healthy childhood and right. was pretty well-adjusted. She was also controlling and occasionally abusive. Sometimes she would... Sometimes she would be physically abusive. She was usually mentally abusive. Um, she would scream or fly off the handle uh, without warning. So that's never great, especially for a kid. Right. Um, and the relationship between mother and daughter was strained and did not get better into the teen years, which we all know are the worst years for any parent and child right. in general. And we already know what happened with that whole situation. We already know what happened. So we know that this doesn't end well. Pauline was actually to, talking about the, the opposite opposites attract. Pauline was short and stocky with curly black hair. She had she her eyes were usually downcast and she usually had a constant scowl. That she had. <laughs> this is this is how I say it. this is my next sentence. This is how I wrote it. That she had a slight limp and it was a bit emo made her hard to know, <laughs> especially for the time because especially in the 1950s across the world it was really important to be conformity to be conformist mm -hmm. and she was not she she was odd there was no doubt she was odd and as a preteen she'd had a bout of religious mania okay and i don't that's all that they say is she had a <laughs> bout of religious mania i don't know if she said that that she i don't know if she was like i'm gonna be a nun and god is great or whatever but she she went crazy for a little bit i guess she hated to be disciplined and was described as crackling with anger Wow. Which is a great way to describe somebody. You know exactly what I'm saying when yep. I say that. Yep. Uh, she was sarcastic and could even come and obviously could come across as creepy. There is a there is a picture of like a class picture of them mm -hmm. where they're all the girls are standing straight as arrows and looking forward and smiling. And she's literally got her head to like her chin to her neck looking down. And I'm like, that is weird. Mm -hmm. And if you were looking for creepy kid photos that would be a creepy kid photo to yeah, find no doubt. um now despite her being creepy and i've seen pictures of her she was not an ugly girl she had this um she had dark eyes and she was described and i i agree she looked a bit of a gypsy okay so she's a very like like you can definitely see like this like if she'd been able to grow up and kind of if she had grown up a little better and in a different time maybe she would have been a flower girl or something like that okay. flower flower child so I found no, I, I'm glad to say this because I didn't find any sources that she was bullied, mm -hmm. but I think people were scared of her. So I think that's probably why she wasn't bullied. That would um, but she did keep to herself, possibly because she could not participate in sports, you know, mm -hmm. and also because. I, I, I got to tell you that based on your description, I'm totally envisioning Ali Sheedy from the Breakfast Club right now. Yeah, I would say, but shorter, sure. you know, I don't know, like, yeah, I would say that that's probably what she, the 1950s version of that. So, right. you know. So this is, but this is, the fact that she couldn't participate in sports, um, that she had to sit out, 
is how she came how she came to be close to Juliet. So they met at Girls High, obviously, right? Because <laughs> they were both in going to Girls High, uh, it, which was a public but prestigious and well-regarded girls' school in Christchurch. They were both assigned to third form, which I think is like the year you're in school. Okay. Um, or the talent you have. I don't entirely know. I was going to look it up, and I totally forgot. Um, due to their medical conditions, you never could participate in sports, and so they bonded as they sat together, because you would. Right. I mean, like, we're talking a couple hours a day. They're sitting on in the shade, you know, yeah. This is stupid. Yeah, I know. I hate this. <laughs> oh, you know what's really cool? This. Yeah, that is really cool. Oh, I like you. I like you too. Da, 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 that kind of thing. It was that they were both interested in books. They were both interested in poetry. And they both liked this fantasy world stuff. So Juliet had never really broken from that. Right. Um, uh, they also bonded that they had both almost died. That they'd spent time in hospitals. And mm-hmm. that they... That that had really changed them, and they didn't really want to be around other people. So after they met, Juliet, who'd never really shown interest in anyone else, went home and said to her mother, Mommy, I've met someone at last with a will as strong as my own. <laughs> Which was likely a reference to the fact that they both had almost died, and they didn't, yeah. you know, at first. So Juliet had never met anyone she felt under, who had understood her, understood how brilliant she was. But Pauline was unabashed in adoring any and all of Juliet's whims, ideas, and interests. But it's hardly surprising. We're talking about a fishmonger's daughter mm-hmm. who all of a sudden is becoming good friends with the beautiful, aloof rector's daughter. Mm-hmm. You know, and even her parents thought she was great, invited her over, made her feel welcome and hilda even called pauline her foster daughter so we're talking about a really solid beginning to a relationship and also this could be the beginning of a beautiful relationship (laughs) well they you know this is this isn't that crazy though is it like two girl like a couple of girls who have nobody else one of them is way cooler than the other according to you know the standards of you know, conformity. Well, I mean, also think about like the, the when you're when you're a kid, it's way easier to make friends. You're like, hey, I like bread. You like bread too? Cool. Let's be best friends. Well, this time they're about they're uh, this was like 1953, so oh. we're talking like you know they're 15, 14, 15, 13, Still, 14, 15. Hey, you read that book? I read yep. that book too. Let's be best friends. Yeah, absolutely. And also, fuck everybody else who thinks they're better than us because they get to play sports. Mm-hmm. You know, who don't doesn't like who's never read. Who's never listened to Mario Lanza or done this or done that or blah, 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 blah. So, so according to Hilda, the friendship started out pretty normal, uh, but changed to something more after. And something more is a thing that I don't like that they say this. They went out biking along the countryside. They got off their bikes. They took off their shoes and socks and their wind cheaters, which is just another word for windbreaker, and danced around wildly, working, quote unquote, working themselves into a state of ecstasy. They're clearly Satanists. To me, that they got off their bikes. Or witches. They danced around and giggled. They they were able to be weird together. They were they finally found somebody that liked them for them, and they be, just became best friends. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. Is one day they became best friends instead of just acquaintances or just girls who like were okay with each other. According to Pauline, who ba- basically Pauline confirms this, she says that was the day their friendship became an indissoluble bond. So we just became the best friends we could possibly be. Mm-hmm. Boom. That's it. Now, the problem with your best friend being 
the rector's daughter who lives in a cool ass house like the house that i'm gonna call it's called ilam okay i-l-a-m it's like an estate so well i mean the house has a name for fuck's sake yeah so the problem with being best friends with a girl who lives in an on an estate when you're just a fishmonger's daughter is that your life at home starts to feel a little drab and boring and you and you feel like it's a little beneath you because your best friend thinks you're brilliant and mm-hmm. you you think you're brilliant and it also about this time the Holmes started to notice that Nora was mean to Pauline cruel to her gotcha um she would Paul, Pauline would tell them about how she was often subjected to cru- to corporal punishment um she was always yelled at and of course this upset Juliet sure who in would weep or almost to the almost weep and would basically beg her parents to let her have Pauline over so she didn't have to be home. So while they were there, they would ride horses, they would play dress up and perform plays. Uh, they and then when towards the end of their of their third form year, they started to sneak out and started they would basically sometimes Pauline would ride from her house to Ilum, but for the most part it was just like when they stayed at Ilum, they would sneak out onto the to the veranda and like sneak down and have picnics with wine and food and things like that. It's all very like normal shit to me. Like the best friends do. They would bike off to the beach. They would have picnics. They would horse. It was like nighttime horse rides and picnics are not going off the rails, but that's (laughs) the way everybody describes this. And I'm like, this is like, a couple of little girls having a great time because they found somebody who they really like hanging out with. Like this isn't to me going off the rails at all. But you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and people go, "Oh, well, they must have been going crazy." No, that I don't. This is all normal shit. All of this is normal shit. And so, unfortunately, because this is, this, by the way, this is my notes. The book just I read describes this as going off the rails. To me, they sound like they're having a great fucking time, and that's exactly <laughs> how I feel. They're having a great fucking time. So it sounds like it, yeah. So, but then for the adults in their lives, first of all, I want to say Nora. Does not like this relationship. I'm not, I, I don't, I don't go into it as much as I probably should have. Mm-hmm. But just know, Nora doesn't like this relationship from the get-go. She, I think she, Nora was very, I don't want to, I don't want to talk badly about a victim. But she wasn't, she was a very controlling mother and she also beat on her kids. She was a bit, I mean, not all the time, but when she, right. when she was angry, she got fucking angry. And I think it was hard for Pauline to stay normal in an environment like that. Mm-hmm. She's a lot more like her mother than she probably would have liked people to know. But anyway, so first and foremost, Nora doesn't like, just know this across the board. Nora does, despite letting her go over there, Nora does not like this relationship. I'm not entirely sure why at first, but later on it becomes more clear. Okay. But for, it's about this time that other adults in their lives start to become concerned with the girl's relationship. They were inseparable. They would walk to school hand in hand. They cut themselves off from other girls as well as school activities, they would shut themselves off and write poetry and stories and sonnets and songs instead of going out and running around and chasing people. But they couldn't. Right. They were physically incapable of doing that. <laughs> right. So, um... Oh, that kid in the wheelchair, he sure doesn't get out of that chair that much. <laughs> oh, right. Something must be wrong with with his life. So others, like, the opinions differ. So the other girls at school thought, well, you're kind of encouraged to have, you know, crushes and things like that. They're all girls' school that happens. But they didn't see it that way. They just thought they were friends. Mm -hmm. They didn't think of it as unhealthy or weird or anything like that. But the headmistress was concerned their relationship had grown to be unhealthy. Basically, she was worried that it was becoming lesbian. Ah. And so... Well, that's completely unacceptable. Well, for 1954, maybe it was. But So she brought it up to Hilda, and Hilda was like... 
I'm not going to get involved in my daughter's friendships. It seems fine to me. And this is one of those things where it's just like, this is a good thing. I mm-hmm. appreciate that Hilda is not worried about the girl's relationship. Up until to this point, they're just being little girls. They're not being crazy. They're not doing right. drugs. They're not fucking each other in front of the parents. They're not fucking each other at all. They're having picnics in the middle of the night. They're having picnics in the middle of the night and riding horses and their bikes to the beach. Yep. Jesus Christ, they're fine. And like, so... And also, if you find somebody who gets you, when you have been cut off from everybody and everybody, like you're cut off from your parents, you don't get on with any of the other girls like Pauline did. Right. You don't, you think you're better than people. You think you're better than me. And then you find someone who you don't think you're better than, or maybe you do a little bit, but at the very least, you think that they're close enough. They're your equal-ish. Yeah. And you find someone who likes you for who you are. It's not crazy that you would be like, I don't want to hang out with anyone but you. Now, for the time, maybe it was unhealthy. I don't know. I think as long as you've got a friend who who likes you, you're doing just fine. Now, Hilda also really liked Pauline because Pauline adored them. Uh And Hilda really liked being adored. Right. So even if she did see or feel any sort of weird stuff, she was like, I'm not going to give that up. This little girl loves the bits out of me. I'm going to love the bits out of her sort of thing. So anyway... Now, it was also about this time, like I said before, they think they're awesome, right. these two. They think they're super smart, which they, which at least, at the very least, we you know Juliet is. Right. Um, they thought they were the only people whose anything ever mattered. They wrote the best poems. Everything they put on paper was great. Well, yeah, they're e- teenagers. Every song they wrote was great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, Pauline wrote a poem called The Ones, the Ones That I Worship. It is a source for many of the titles of movies and books about her and Juliet. Um, most famously, Heavenly Creatures, which if anyone has seen it, it's by Peter Jackson. It was one of his first movies. It's I tried to watch it. I got through most of it, but I had to stop because I was doing research and it was starting to piss me off because it's way too fantastical and goes <laughs> way too into some of the stuff that like... The book was better. <laughs> the, the, I'm just saying that the, that the reality was less fantastic, I right. think. Um, so... I wanted to read it to you guys because um, it gives a little bit of insight into the way she saw them and shows that she may, maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. She may have vastly overestimated her talents. <laughs> so there are living among, amongst two, start over. I'm going to start over. There are living among two beautiful daughters of a man who possesses two beautiful daughters, the most glorious beings in creation. they be the pride and joy of any nation. You cannot know, nor yet try to guess, the sweet soothingness of their caress. The outstanding genius of this pair is understood by few. They are so rare. Compared with these two, every man is a fool. The world is most honored that they should deign to rule. And above us, these goddesses reign on high. I worship the power of these lovely two, with their adoring love known to so few. Tis indeed a miracle one must feel that two such heavenly creatures are real. Both sets of eyes, though different far, hold many mysteries strange. Impassively they watch the race of man decay and change. Hatred burning bright in the brown eyes with enemies for fuel. Icy scorn glitters in the gray eyes, contemptuous and cruel. Why are men such fools that they will not realize the wisdom that is hidden behind those strange eyes? And these wonderful people are you and I. She rhymed I with I. She also rhymed daughters with daughters. Yeah. It's it's a 15-year-old's poem. Yep. 
about her and her best friend who are super great, you know? At least it wasn't about, like, how deep and mysterious and dark everything is, and you just wouldn't understand. Not yet. Nope. <laughs> so that's how she feels about them. Now, during Easter of 1953. Okay, now, this is something I want to say because I want to apologize to everyone out there because I'm going to get the seasons wrong. In New Zealand, Easter equals... Fall. Fall. See, I had to stop there because I was not sure. So I'm going to say that it's summer sometimes when it's actually winter. And I'm going to say that it's winter when it's actually summer. I just know it already. So bear with me. So during Easter of 1953, Pauline was invited to go to um, Port Levy with the homes for the holiday. They had a house there. Okay. Now, this trip is significant for two reasons. The first one is that Mrs. Hulme, Hilda did Pauline's hair and while she was doing so told her she wished she was her daughter too. And then on April 3rd, the girls rose before dawn when the girl, I'm talking about Pauline and Julia Mm -hmm. in case everyone wondered and walked up the hill behind the cottage. As they watched the sunrise, something happened, which Pauline would later describe in her diary. And I'm going to read that now. Okay. Today, Juliet and I found the key to the fourth world. We realize now that we have had it in our possession for about six months, but we only realized it on the day of the death of Christ. We saw a gateway through the clouds. We sat on the edge of the path and looked down the hill over the bay. The island looked beautiful. The sea was blue. Everything was full of peace and bliss. We then realized we had the key. We now know that we are not genii, or genii, G-E-N-I-I, as we thought. We have an extra part of our brain which we can which can appreciate the fourth world. Only about 10 people have it. When we die, we will go to the fourth world. But meanwhile, on two days every year, we may use the key and look into that beautiful world which we have been lucky enough to be allowed to know of on this day of finding the key on the way through the clouds. The key is friendship. That's how they de- defeat Voldemort. <laughs> um, I just think they have really good imaginations. Yeah, no doubt. Um, pe- people point to this and they say that it's it's like a shared um, hallucination. Hallucination, and I'm just like, I, I think they're just re- two really creative girls who were really ju- good at playing off of each other. Yeah, yeah. Like they saw the sun rise. Mm-hmm. It looks the world looks better when the hey, sun rises. What does that cloud look like to you? It looks like a gateway. Or it yeah. looks like a portal. Ooh, a portal to another world. What is that world? It's the, the fourth, fourth world. world. Yeah, this is. We we must have a special part of our brain to see it, to be able to see into it. Yeah, yeah. And we're like Jedi, and we do cool things. And there's only ten of us. Yes. Yeah. You. This is exactly it. I think that they just got each other. They liked the other one's creativity. They, 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 what is the term? You just said it. They played off each other really well. They knew. They clicked. They clicked. They, they got each other. Now. If they'd been born a few decades later, uh, they would have formed their own improv company. Oh God. I like this. Just having the two of them create stuff. That's a much better way of, nothing's wrong with improv. Improv is great. There. (laughs) You almost convinced me. <laughs> so that was very significant and something that everyone points to as being like a beginning of a world religion or their their own religion or something. But here's the thing. Okay, so this we're going to get a little bit into the religion now because the religion has to do with a bunch of Hollywood stars. They were obsessed with James Mason. This is very, very interesting because we were just talking about something and James Mason came up and anyway, so 
they are obsessed with the with the film Prisoner of Zenda. Have you ever seen it? Nope. I have not. It's a movie about a very complicated love square thing where somebody can marry somebody and somebody else and blah, 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 blah. So, but because of their interest in James Mason and other stars, they made a list of gods and saints. So, and made a makeshift shrine in Juliet's garden at Ilum. Okay. The last two saints are sa- are characters of their own creation that they wrote in their own fiction because these girls were writing all the time. Right. The gods were James Mason, who they called him. This is going to get really fucking complicated, but I'm not going to I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to talk about them like this. Right. Because I will get confused. Guy Rolf, who I don't know, okay. is his. These are the gods. Those are the two gods. The saints are Mario Lanza, so he's he is he Mario or poor Mario. Not entirely sure why he's poor Mario. Orson Welles is it or Harry Lime? I'm not sure if I'm not like Harry like Harry like the name, not yeah. like Harry like a Harry Lime. That would have been funnier. Um, you mean like a kiwi? <laughs> that's funny because they're kiwis because they're from New Zealand. Ha ha ha. But Mel Ferrer. Okay. Or Ferrer. I think it's Ferrer, though. Ferrer. Is this or the angry man? Jesse Bejorling, who I don't know who that is, is that. And then Rupert of Hensau is who? And Charles Boynard is question mark. I don't, I think I'm pretty sure those are the two people who are. I really like to think that they that they actually called him question mark. I think so. I think it'd be great if they if they did. I thought that's a very confusing uh, uh, naming scheme they've got there. <laughs> who are you talking about? Him. No, I thought you were talking about his. No, he. No, it. No, that. No, this. No, who. Oh, poor Mario. <laughs> what about Harry Lime? <laughs> question <Or> mark. <laughs> So they built like this makeshift shrine to them where they like had their pictures and lit candles and things like that. Little known fact, this is what Scientology was based off ah, of. Maybe. But this is exactly what we were just saying. This is a couple of girls who ha- are fans of movie stars and they've, they make up a stupid gods and saints thing mm-hmm. and have a shrine to them in the backyard that's probably like that they go to when they're like just when they just want to go and sit somewhere they probably go sit in front of the shrine to be honest with you this doesn't sound that much different from girls putting up posters in their rooms yeah teenage girls putting posters up in the rooms of you know in sync and whatever other things that teenage girls are into now like in sync wasn't even popular when we were in high school well but you know what i mean yeah I know exactly what you mean, and I agree with you. This is just a couple of girls being girls, mm-hmm. and they look at it and they point to it as like this nefarious something or another, and it's like they're just being kids. They're they're thir- this is the, over a year before the murder happens, and they're like blaming these children. Cult leaders ritualistically beat women to death, and that's during the trial. They sort of try to. They it's dumb. It's all stupid. But anyway, so. Around this time, these girls are writing all the time. They're writing books. They're writing movies. They're writing sonnets. They're writing everything. And their stories are usually based on this, like, prisoner of Zenda sort of thing. So it's like this medieval-y thing where fantasy realms... This is like fantasy... This this is one of the times that, like, fantasy was pretty popular to begin with. Right. But they're, like, writing, like, medieval fantasy stuff. They've got their own kingdoms. They've got their own princes and princesses and queens and kings and things like that. Um, there was violence within the writing, but it was like violence for that. It was the right kind of. It was the right kind of violence. It wasn't like 
people were being murdered and beheaded and things like that. It wasn't like they were like bashing people's heads in with bricks. They right. were just writing about the kind of stuff they watched in the movies, which yeah. isn't, or that they were reading in other books. It was they, probably like violence, like the knights fought with each other and they. No, it was like no, and... it was like they like there was a guy who like murdered like fifty people like for fun. This is like like it, they're not nice people, but it's right. not also not like it's not an indication that later on they're gonna murder the, her mother. Right. Like it, you can point to something and say, in hindsight, this is clearly pointing to a disturbed individual but i don't think we're looking at it i don't think that's the case i think what we should be worried about is the fact that they're fanatical about it they're writing all day they're writing all night they're getting four hours of sleep they're getting three hours of sleep they're not both of them this is constant Mm -hmm. that's more worrying than what they're writing because kids have imaginations especially when you're 13 14 just discovering stuff you want to get all that stuff if you're a writer, that's how you deal with it. You know, as a writer, that's how you, I know this, you, you deal with it by writing about it. Mm-hmm. So they're learning about death. They're seeing it on screen. They think it's kind of sexy because they think James Mason's kind of sexy and he's always a bad guy and everything. So they're like, ooh, we're going to write about bad guys. It's not, they don't want to kill somebody. Now they do eventually kill somebody. I am aware of this, <coughs> but it's not that they kill somebody because of these books and because of these stories. Right. They kill somebody because of other reasons, but we won't, we'll get into that later. Now, again, though, what should be worrying is that they're not sleeping, but nobody seems to be worried about that, the fact right. that they're not sleeping. They should, these girls should be sleeping. They're too young to not be sleeping. But it's around this time in fall of 1953, I just I wrote down spring, um, Henry Hulm is sent by Canterbury College to represent them at the Congress of Universities in London. Now... This is a very important trip because not only is he told he's sent there, he's told by the university that he should start looking for a new job. Okay. They don't care for him. He has not been a popular rector, mostly because they never had a rector before and they didn't like that he was the way he was running things because they weren't. It was like old like old boys not liking the new change right. kind of a thing. He was pretty good at his job. He never had any. Nobody else ever complained about him ever. But according to the guys at Canterbury College, he was shit at his job, which maybe he was. Who knows? Right. But he was going to London to go to this conference. Hilda was going to go with him and the kids would stay behind. Now, this is not uncommon for this family. They are a bunch of dicks. So Jonathan. It's not the first time Juliet's been left alone. (laughs) Yep. At the very least, Jonathan is at boarding school, so he'll have a place to live. Now, the good news for Juliet is that she is to stay with the Reapers. So she gets to live with her BFF, which is pretty fucking great. Still doesn't sound like good news to me. No? Well, I suppose because... But, I mean, Nora wasn't, like, beating on the kids all the time. She would just occasionally... but also, you know, she's used to living at home in her nice house with her nice family with all their money and everything. And now she's going to go live with the fishmongers wherever they live. Yeah. Well, Well, you know, but... So the girls were thrilled, of course. Um, unfortunately. Well, and that, and, you know, they're going to be far, far away from their shrine to. To the, to the saints. Yeah. The gods and saints. They don't have like a, they don't have an overarching name for these gods and saints. They just call them the gods and the saints. Or the saints eventually. I don't think they ever, whenever. They don't really call the guys the gods so much as they, whatever. It doesn't matter. So. Unfortunately, that would never happen. Juliet would never be staying with them because she got tuberculosis because her chest was crap. I feel like if you were susceptible to this at that time, you were always susceptible to it. And I don't know why. Maybe it's just if you have weakened lungs or something. I don't know. 
Still got those lung shadows. So she was admitted to a sanatorium until she was better. Now, Pauline was brokenhearted over this because, of course, she didn't want her friend to be to have tuberculosis. But she also had this weird thing that kids do where she was like, oh, I wish I would get tuberculosis, too. So we could spend more time together. Or just, you know, like that, oh, wafy, mm-hmm. I'm so weak and uh, sort of thing. So, unfortunately, Juliet's parents, because, again, there are a couple of dicks, they still went to London. They stuck her in a sanatorium and fucking left her. Bye, we'll see you when we get back. Now, Juliet was pissed that they did this. Wouldn't you be? I would certainly be fucking pissed. I'm sick again, and you're leaving me again? Like, literally every time I get sick, you fucking leave me? Right. Fuck you. So... She was crushed by her by their abandonment, obviously, and only wrote to them twice. By contrast... That'll show them. Well, apparently Hilda was pissed that she only wrote to them twice. Like, <laughs> Of course she was. Yeah. Hilda sucks. So, But in contrast, her and Pauline drew closer. They only saw each other. Pauline was only allowed to go see her like three times while she was there, mostly because her mother was frightened of her catching tuberculosis. Right. Um, but they wrote letters constantly constantly they began to write one another as two of their fictional characters which i think is super cool yeah like they would write one of them juliet would write as prince charles and second son of the king of their fictional world barovnia and then pauline would write as lancelot trelawney a soldier of fortune who'd won the heart of the empress of alumnia wow yeah these are pretty cool names i want to live in their world right and so together they would write they would write as their character of their exploits and then part of the letter would be hey Juliet this is Pauline I miss you and I hope you're doing okay and things like that. So it was like this really cool like way to not to me this is a great way to keep up Juliet's spirits. Pauline doesn't even know that this is the kind of thing you're supposed to do. Right. She's but just doing it. She's just doing it cuz she wants to cheer up her friends. So she's like, "Hey, do you want to write as Charles and Lancelot and we'll have like this really great fun It was probably few months. more like she just decided one day to write to her like that and then because of the way that they act around each other Juliet just wrote back and was, and they just kept going with it. Yeah, it's and it's lovely. It's awesome. I think it's it's one of the, if if they had if things had gone a different way, they may have been two of the most creative fantasy writers that we've ever seen. Yeah. Um so a lot of people talk about the violence of their characters. I already talked about this with you, but I I guess it matters, but I think they're just kids writing they're just having a good they're just trying to keep themselves busy because they miss the crap out of each other because the internet doesn't exist exactly (laughs) exactly now something happens though while juliet is away the dynamic between the girls changes okay up until this point juliet has been boss lady she's much more um self-assured than pauline in every way now two things happen two subjects happen i should say while Juliet is in the sanatorium. Okay. First of all, they're apart from each other. So the separation is important because Pauline at this time starts to take interest in boys. And this is a normal thing for a 15-year-old. Mm-hmm. It's not crazy. But I don't know that this would have necessarily happened the way it had if Juliet had been there. Right. So the first boy she takes an interest in is a boy that they had met through the college um, named J- Jaya, J-A-Y-A. He's from Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka, okay. which I can actually say easier, so I'm going to say Sri Lanka. 
but it's only the one time that I'm going to mention him. They, she had gone to visit him in his room Ooh. and gotten into bed with him. Scandalous. But nothing happened because he was a foreigner and overage and she was underage and didn't he he didn't want to get in trouble and maybe he didn't like her as much as maybe she thought he did so that's now more importantly is nicholas john nicholas bolton but everyone calls him nicholas okay he's a boarder at the reaper household uh in mid-july of 1953 the two had a couple of times where they made out pretty steadily and this once in his room and once in her room, Ooh. and the second, the night that they were in her room, her dad walked in. Oh, snap. So, and this is a like a 19-year-old. She's 15. Her father kicks in the F out of the house, of course. Right. That 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 boy isn't staying if he's going to try to get on our daughter, yeah. you know? So, but this didn't stop the relationship, okay? I think maybe partially because her parents didn't want it. I think Pauline really liked it when people didn't want things in her <laughs> life, and so she went for it, so... They continue to see one of each other throughout the throughout the winter and into spring even, even after Juliet was released from the hospital. Now, it culminated in early October in two incidences where the first one, they, it talks, the book I read, which is called um, Anne Perry and the Crime of the Century. Um, the book I wrote about talks a lot about not being successful in intercourse. And I don't know if that means that they tried to have intercourse. I mean, like over and over again, it talks about that as if like she said no or he couldn't get it up. I don't really understand. There's no, they don't. But I, at the same time, maybe basing this on Pauline's diaries, maybe she didn't say that. Maybe she just said we were unsuccessful at having intercourse or something like that. But so there was, I think she thought they'd had sex one day. And then it turned out when they actually had sex, she realized that they hadn't had sex. <laughs> so, cause, so she says, um, like, I thought that I lost my It turns out I didn't lose my virginity on Thursday. I know now for sure that I have. <laughs> so it's it's very, it's an interesting, so it's an interesting entry, diary entry. Now, the reason I say that this is important and changes the dynamic is because now she has an interest beyond Juliet. Right. And she also has an experience that Juliet doesn't have. So now I think her confidence is changing. She's also been hanging out with Juliet. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's helped her become more confident. And now she's this much more confident. Right. Now, the other thing that changed was that because Juliet, Juliet's parents just left her. Right. And I think that that broke whatever trust was left. And then there's Pauline standing in the background, her constant companion, never leaving her, never walking away always wanting to be there for her. So her dependence on Pauline grows and her loyalty of her grows. She doesn't, she no longer wants to be without her. Right. Because she can trust that she won't ever have to be. So it becomes something, the relationship to Juliet becomes very different than it used to be. It used to be just friendship. And I think now it's complete loyalty. So when her parents get back, she punishes them. Tantrums, coldness, calculated insults, stuff like that, they get back into their fantasy worlds. They delve deeper into them. They bec- It just starts to get deeper and more intense at this point in time after she gets out of the hospital. Um, now, this is when the Holmes start to see the relationship as problematic. They blame Pauline. But again, I think that doesn't make sense because Pauline, I think, is pulling away. She's spending time with Nicholas. Mm-hmm. She's kind of, she's not really pulling away, but she's not as intensely into Juliet as she used to be. Right. But I think Juliet screams when she's, when they say temper tantrums, I think she's throwing temper tantrums if Pauline isn't there. 
Gotcha. I think she is like, Pauline needs to be here right now. I don't want to see you. I only want Pauline. Mm-hmm. And I think her parents don't care for it because they're seeing their daughter reject them for someone else. And they think it's an obsession when it's, and it is, it is an obsession. Right. But it's also, um, starts to worry them because they think there might be a lesbian relationship happening. So they encourage damn lesbians. So they encourage the reapers, Pauline's parents to get Pauline checked for lesbianism. Well, we did the test and it was conclusive. (laughs) Total lesbian. Now, the Reapers, and I'm calling them that because that's what they are at this time, were less concerned with lesbianism, even though they didn't care for the relationship. They were less concerned with lesbianism and more with the fact that her do- their daughter is... I mean, the reason they, they're not concerned about lesbianism because they're worried about the fact that she's having sex with boys, mm-hmm. which is not a thing a lesbian does, usually. Right. And uh, the fact that in the last few months, as Juliet's been sick, Pauline has developed an eating disorder. Likely bulimia. It wasn't a thing then, I don't think. A diagnosable thing then. Um, The condition had become so bad that Pauline stopped having her period. So that means that she was so thin Mm -hmm. that she stopped having her period. Well, that's what happens when you only eat fourth world food. (laughs) Her parents threatened to keep her away from Juliet if her health didn't improve, but they never really did. Like, this is one of the things that... Throughout this story, the parents keep threatening them, but I don't think they ever really thought it was serious. Because right. up until the point when it was serious, it I don't think it was serious. So now I, I have here, I cannot stress enough how much Mrs. Reaper did not like the relationship between the girls. She did not like Juliet. She thought Juliet was a bad influence on her daughter. Uh-huh. I think, I don't think she thought it was a lesbian relationship. I think she thought her daughter thought she was above her station. Mm. She didn't like that her daughter was getting these ideas about going, about being a writer and getting this and doing that. She wanted her to be realistic. And Juliet was putting all these things in her head and be, and Pauline was coming home and going, we don't have any money. We don't, we don't go on vacations. You know, it was teenage bullshit, yeah. you know? And so I can't imagine she liked the, being compared to Hilda Holm, right. who she didn't care for very much because Hilda Holm isn't a very nice person. Right. So anyway, now. Well, not 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 even that necessarily being compared to, but like being the bad side of it. Like, yeah. Oh, well, you're not like... You're not like Hilda like this, and you're not yeah. like Hilda, Hilda like this. Hilda, Hilda dresses like a beautiful, you know, like, You know fairy what, you princess. little shit? Hilda's a piece of shit. I have to work for a living kid. Yeah. You know, da, 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 da. So now, unfortunately, they took her to the doctor because, well, you know, why not? And then, actually, maybe the they, lesbian test doctor. You know, the lesbian test doctor. Yeah. But also, he's a shrink. So, or I don't even know if he is a shrink. He's just a, they just call him a doctor. I assume he's a shrink. I always assume they're shrinks, though. But he was certain, certain that Pauline had a sec- had a homosexual attachment to Juliet, despite the fact that Pauline was like, I'm not even going to answer any of your questions. You're totally fucking stupid and I hate you. Shut up, lame Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, the result likely, because he's like, yeah, they're definitely a lesbian relationship. The families were probably both like, okay, let's, let's back this off a little bit. And so because of that, Pauline was not invited to Christmas at Port Levy that year. Ooh. And they weren't allowed to see each other for like a month or something Whatever like that. Whatever shall they do. Exactly. But, but this murder, is a... Murder Pauline's mom. That's what. Not not quite yet. Not quite yet. We're not there yet. <laughs> so it was around... But this is on the home side that they couldn't see each other. The homes wouldn't let them. So now this was about the time that the girls started calling each other 
by different names. Now, there are a lot of name changes in this. I didn't go through all the name changes. Pauline was her (laughs) and Juliet was she. No, uh, thankfully, that's not the case. It's much more easy to follow. Um, Pauline was Musty Steve. (laughs) (laughs) And Juliet was Old Greg. (laughs) No. (laughs) You're weird. (laughs) So So Juliet became Deborah, which is just a Deborah, but pronounced Deborah. And Pauline became Gina. So uh, it's likely that they were named for actresses Deborah Kerr and Gina Lolo Brigida. Lola Brigida? Sure. Yeah, I think that's at Lola Brigida. But I don't know. Like, they literally change their names all the time in this. They call each other male names. They call each other female names. They're just... But Deborah and Gina... Deborah and Gina kind of stuck. So we're just going with... If I mention Deborah, I'm talking about Juliet. If I talk about Gina, I'm talking about Pauline. Just know that. I'm going to try to stick with their regular names, so, but occasionally I won't. But the, there's also journal entries where they'll refer to each other as gotcha. the opposite. So. Now... While they while Juliet was away for Christmas, the girls exchanged letters and spoke on the phone. Oh, did I skip something? Oh, I wanted to say, Pauline had broken up with Nicholas on October 28th, which was Juliet's birthday. But they didn't stop seeing each other. Basically, uh, obvious lesbian move, breaking up with your boyfriend on your girlfriend's birthday. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but so her boyfriend, so she didn't she didn't stop seeing Nicholas. But she didn't see him as o- that often unless she couldn't didn't have access to Juliet. So if she didn't have access to Juliet, she was calling up Nicholas. So Nicholas was the jelly on the side? Y- yes. So while Juliet was away for Christmas, the girls exchanged letters and talked on the phone and things. Which is interesting because the parents didn't seem to have a problem with that. They just didn't want them physically together. Even right. though they had, there had been no physical... Whatever. It's I don't want. I will never understand the parents in this story for the life... I will never understand anybody in this story for the life of me. Don't so. you know, parents just don't understand. <laughs> Cut to the song. Anyway. Yeah. So Pauline asked her mother if she could see Nicholas and began to be positively angelic because her mother asked her if she told her that if she if she was good, maybe she could see him. She started being positively angelic in order to win her mother's favor. This was the time frame in which she was referring to Juliet as Nicholas. <laughs> and Juliet referred to her as Mustache Gina. <laughs> mustache Gina. <laughs> Her, but unfortunately, her mother was convinced that the good behavior was because she wasn't hanging out with Nicholas. So she wrote Nicholas telling him to stay away because Pauline had gotten better since he hadn't been around. Pauline was livid over this. She was like, I can't F you, you know. During this time period, she also bought a horse and she called him Omar Kayam, which I think is a writer and or character in something. I don't I'm not entirely sure. She kept it a secret from her parents, but they found out and they didn't care. So I don't understand why she kept it a secret, but right. mostly they didn't care because they thought it would keep her away from Juliet, right. which is... Why don't you go hang out with not Juliet? I mean, your horse t- today. <laughs> so by the end of January... So this is, the, this is what Pauline's been up to. She's been hanging out with Nicholas when she, when she can, sneaking around, seeing him if she can. And then she's going out riding her horse and then she gets caught and then it turns out it's fine and then her family digs it that she's got a horse because it's cool that she has a horse mm-hmm. that's kind of neat look at her horse her horse is amazing give it a lick it tastes just like raisins by the end of january of 1954 uh the parents seem to have calmed down about the relationship between the girls probably because there were some distractions that were happening i'm sure juliet had a nice time when on vacation 
Now, I want to, I do want to say that there, there's a reason that we only really know from from Paulette's, Pauline, I keep saying Paulette in my mind too, Pauline's state of mind is because we only have Pauline's journals. Juliet also kept journals, but we'll get into why we don't have any of them She lit them all on fire. Maybe she did, or maybe someone else did. So... Wait, she her fire actually happened to diaries? Maybe. Okay. I was just making a joke. Yes, fire actually happened to diaries. Nice. So... I guess that's not really that... It's not that crazy. It's a teenage girl. Well, uh, so, <laughs> so the parents allowed them to see each other again. With all of the contact with Juliet renewed, Pauline, of course, lost interest in her horse. And she officially lost interest in Nicholas and dumped him for the for good. No more contact with him on February 25th. Which is the day that both Nicholas and the horse died. <laughs> so... By at this time, the girls were no longer writing about Barovia and Val- Volumnia. They were working on mature novels. Ooh. The Donkey Serenade and the Beautiful Dirty by Pauline and the Beautiful Lady by Juliet. According to the Anne Perry and the Murder of, of the Century, sexual matters. I love this. Okay, this I, is one of my favorite sentences of the book. Sexual matters increasingly occupied their thoughts, and a certain luxurious physicality entered their friendship. If they had been alive during the time that the internet existed, they would both be the most celebrated and prolific fanfic authors of all time. Oh my god, they super would be. Maybe, yep, I think you're 100% correct about that. You're 100% correct about that. Um, But I love that luxurious physicality entered their relationship. It's beautiful. Yeah. It doesn't, they don't talk further about that. They just, that's, that's the line. And he moves on. You can just read into that what you will. Now, around this time, they started talking about what it would like to be prostitutes and how much they would like to charge. Now, this is, they're not the first, like, I don't, I did not do this. I don't know. I was never like, let's be, talk about what prostitutes would make. But like. I've read other books where like women, not of my generation, but of their generation and a little younger talked about it like it was sexy, like it was a like it was a good thing to do, like it was a cool thing to do. And I'm not saying that prostitution can't be can't be positive. And if as long as it's done in a healthy way and, you know, everybody's getting tested and things more power to you. But like it's not like a luxurious. Maybe back then it was a little more luxurious than it is now. Maybe. I don't know. At the very least, it was, you know. There was a fantasy about how cool it might be or something like that, you know? Anyway, so. Well, I mean, also, I mean, this is pure speculation right now, but like at the time, you know, this is still in the, in the early fifties. So like feminism isn't really a big thing yet. So like, what do women have to look forward to being housewives? You get the glamorous life. This is air quotes, the glamorous life of, of being a prostitute. You know, you get to go live your life and be kind of free and yeah. wear fancy clothes and I mean, men, especially if men fawn over you and then you've got all the money i guess in a sad way it's like living the american dream so to speak maybe i mean it's kind of terrifying and sad to think about it like that but i mean it's i'm i understand what you're saying though and you're probably right that may be exactly what it is i don't want to get married and get have a husband and be a housewife and be my have my mother's life in the case of both of them really yeah. yep but so yeah i get the clear the clear uh, um 
understanding that neither one of them liked their mothers, even though their mothers are both very different women. They're both very much anti my mom. But what's funny is that Pauline adores Hilda. Oh, yeah. Like Hilda is goddess to her. But it's because she's so, so freaking glamorous. She's like, oh, I want to be your mom. And I'm sure that Juliet was like, fuck my mom. Right. So, so anyway, so in mid-February, the first of a very disturbing thought enters Pauline's mind. I'm not, I'm, I don't know if it entered her mind before this, but at the very least, this is the first time she writes it down in her diary. Her mother and her had a fight over her weight because her mother told her she had to be eight stone in order to see Juliet. Okay. Eight stone is like not even 140 pounds. It's like 110 well, one pounds. One stone is like it's seven. Like four, it's 14 seven, pounds. Okay. It's okay. I was going to say seven kilograms, but I think that that's about the same anyway. So. But yeah. So eight, eight stone. Is 100 and something, 16 pounds. 100, no, 112 pounds. So. Wafer thin. Wafer thin. But she's seven stone at this point. So she's at 98 pounds. Okay. And oh, her, so she's trying to get her up in weight. She wants her to be eight pound, eight oh, stone. Okay, so it's not the... She doesn't think she's fat. It's, she it's thinks she's the, too thin. It's not the direction I thought it no, was going. No, she wants okay. her to be okay. heavier okay. Um, because she had bulimia, and so she was very thin. And also her attitude. So Pauline was tired of hearing of, of what she saw as being blackmailed by her mother. So this is part. this is from her diary. This afternoon, mother told me I could not go to Ilum again until I was eight stone and more cheerful. As I am now, as I am now seven stone, there is little hope. Also, one cannot help recalling that she was the same over Nicholas. She said I could not see him again until my behavior improved, and when it did, she concluded it was having his influence that caused it. Why could mother not die? Dozens of people are dying all the time, thousands. So why not mother and father too? Life is very hard. So here's your darkness yep. that you were looking for before. Life is hard, you guys. So, the life of a teenager. Sigh. Yep, 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 yep. So soon after this, Pauline and Juliet decided that they needed to go to Hollywood. Well, that's where all the saints are. That's where all the saints are, yes. You are you, absolutely you, right. You, you might call Hollywood Saints Row. <laughs> so they need to, they, while they were there, they would, of course, find, and one of them or both of them would marry James Mason. It didn't matter, just one of them, but it didn't matter who. They were happy with the other one marrying him, if that's what the case it may be. They would publish their books and star in the films that were made from those books. They would, and of course, they would need money to get there, so Pauline put her house up for sale. Um, and they would, they basically started looking for ways to make money. They would make, they would try to steal money if they could. They would sell whatever they could. I think even, I think Juliet sold her horse as well. Like this is like, they're just trying to get like $150. Okay. Pa did Pauline sell her house or her horse? horse? You horse. said house. I meant to say horse. Okay. I apologize. She put her horse up for sale. Okay. Um, Soon after this, she started, she stopped going to school. Pauline stopped going to school. Deborah, Deborah was not in school because she never went back to school after being sick. Right. And Deborah wasn't enrolled either. So win-win. Ha 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 ha. But so Pauline didn't want to go to school because Deborah wasn't there. So she decided she was going to be a governess and make money that way. And her mother seemed fine with that. Um, and also her mom... Want, didn't want her to go to school. I think she thought it was a privilege or something. It's very, this is a very, I don't understand the motivations behind anybody. It doesn't, I, why you would tell your daughter she can't go to school anymore doesn't make any sense. Unless she wanted her to go make money, but right. whatever. But what's really funny is that Pauline's parents were really supportive of her writing, right? So the, the girls wrote 
like three books each in this time period. And every time she finished a book, the family would like celebrate with her. Okay. So she's got like a strangely supportive family and like a not. But I don't think the thing about Pauline's family is I think they're good people. They're solid people. Mm-hmm. Nora's got a little bit of a temper and sometimes she flies off the handle. Sure. But Bert's like a good dude and he like loves his kids. He just, you know, left his first wife because he was unhappy or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like Wendy's her, her older sister is fine and they go see Rosemary every Sunday. So this is like a family that's like good to each other. It's just that Pauline is like a like a black sheep. She's unhappy. She's had shitty stuff happen to her. Mm-hmm. And so they are supportive, but they're also like her mom doesn't get her because she's different from Wendy and she doesn't understand her. Rosemary's easy to understand because she's, mm-hmm. you know, Down syndrome. So she's there's it's easier to, to predict her. Right. But she, she can't predict Pauline. So she's like they have a shitty relationship in general. And so it's hard to deal with her. So I think the only one they had trouble with is Pauline. And that's why. But it's, so she would fly off the handle and smack her every once in a while. She probably didn't get like super beat. I think she just got smacked every once in a while. I don't right. think it was. I think mostly she just got yelled at because she was being a shithead. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so, but they were really like, they liked that she was writing. They wanted that. They never in this entire thing does her family say, oh, we didn't like that. She was writing so much. We didn't like that. She was so, you know, creative she had her head in the clouds. Yeah. They didn't, they didn't mind that. So, and because she was also practical, I'm going to be a governess. Well, that's mm-hmm. pretty fucking practical, you know? So now we're at, into a time period when everybody, all the parents seem to not really care that the relationship is still go- ongoing. Which is interesting because despite... They've, they've all just given up. They've all, maybe like, that is the case. Maybe they've all just given fine. up. So about late March 1954, Pauline and Juliet were spending every weekend at Ilum. So the parents were letting Pauline spend Thursday to Sunday at Ilum. Which to me, maybe they were just like, we're done with her. We can't handle her. Send her off so she's happy. Mm-hmm. And maybe maybe that's the reason that they were the, uh, the homes were letting her come. Because they were like, if we don't let them hang out together, they're both going to flip the fuck out all the time. Mm-hmm. So let's just let them hang out and then they'll make everybody happy. But the homes also seemed to be completely, un- like, completely unworried. Even though they were like, we- whatever. It's probably because of the temper tantrums. Right. I'm just going to go with it's because of the temper tantrums. But it was during one of these stays that it became clear to Juliet and Pauline that Hilda was having an affair with a man named Bill Perry, who she had moved in to their guest. I don't know if it was their guest rooms or their their servants quarters or whatever, because he was getting a divorce and that Mm -hmm. he needed a place to live. He walked into the room one day and put his arm around Hilda's waist and Hilda goes, not here. The children are here. And they heard it and they are very, this is a time when they're very aware of sex and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. They're, they're coming into the age. Pauline's already had sex. Like they are, they are paying attention and they notice it. And instead of being heartbroken about it, Juliet is pumped because this is how she's going to get the money to go to America. She's going to blackmail Bill and her mother. She's going to catch them in the act and blackmail them. Gotcha. So... That does eventually happen. But in the meantime, the girls started to sneak around and not follow the rules. They used to have, they they were supposed to stay in separate rooms, but Pauline would sneak into Juliet's room and they'd stay up all night talking. So, so far that's normal. Mm -hmm. They took baths together, but apparently that was normal. Okay. I mean, for everybody being concerned they're lesbians, letting them do all this naked stuff together is a little (laughs) weird. I don't, whatever. So they off they spoke about the old subject, quote unquote, the old subject, which was sex. 
They took photos of one another, sometimes in Hilda's gowns, and then sometimes they'd take naked photos of each other. Naughty. Again. Yeah, this sounds like uh, give up times for the parents. Yeah, I would say. They're just like, ugh, whatever. Whatever, just let them do whatever they want. They're going to freak out on us. And then they wrote down all the Ten Commandments so they could break all of them, which is interesting because of what ends up happening. But also, I mean, uh, they can't uh, commit adultery. They're kids. True. But whatever. So... On April 20- they'll get to that one. Yeah, they'll get to that one eventually. So on April 22nd, so we're talking, this is about a month after they saw this interaction between Bill and Hilda. Mm-hmm. Juliet was finally able to catch Julie, or Bill with, her mother with Bill. They were, she caught them in bed drinking tea, which I, I when I first read it, I assumed that she, like, Hilda was just sitting on the bed and they were drinking tea. But then when I reread it, I realized that she caught them in bed drinking tea. So they were like both laying in bed mm-hmm. having a cup of tea, which is interesting post-sex stuff, but maybe very British. I don't know. Like, sure. So she was both, sh- she, despite the fact that she was expecting this, right. she was shocked uh-huh. because I don't, I don't, you never really want to think your mom's fucking someone else behind your dad's back, right? Right. Like, I don't think that anybody is like, yeah, you're right. I'm really excited <laughs> yeah. that my mom is having sex with them. But she was shocked and she also thrilled and was able to, and she, according to Juliet, was a, he, she was able to blackmail Bill for $100. Now, Bill would deny this. But he also remembers her trying to blackmail him. So he, there was this, like, she probably, he probably said, yeah, I'll give you a hundred bucks or something like that. And he never did. So, right. she, you know, that kind of thing. So the following day, she ca- Juliet called and told Pauline what happened. And Pauline wrote out to Ilum. Henry, of course, has been told that, because Henry is aware of this affair. This is going on in the background. Very adult things are happening. And mostly it's just, they're just living together. And uh, there's an understanding that Bill and her are having sex. And Henry is not happy about it. But he's also, what can he do? Hilda is going to do what she wants. Mm -hmm. So he's just like, fine, we'll live together. But now the girls have found out. And he decides to take them downstairs for a chat. And he wanted to know all about their plans for America. Um, informed that he would be, and then informed them that he would be leaving his job at Canterbury College um, because of being pushed out, and that he and Mrs. Hulme would be divorcing. So now they're going to get divorced, and that they would be leaving New Zealand. Now, Pauline wrote in her diary that this was not great, but also it could be good because it sounded like she might be going with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was sure they would all be going together. Um, at f- it's not to me. It's not clear if at this point they told they'd actually told her that, or if it was just an assumption. Um, I imagine they assumed yeah. that they would never leave each other, or they didn't want to leave each other. So, I mean, at this point, they're both very like attached to each other, and I'm sure that Juliet was like, "Well, Polly or Gina's coming with me," or something like that. Mm-hmm. And they were like, "Sure, Gina's coming with you. Whatever you want." And they were like, "There's no fucking way," you know. So, after all, whatever. So now the actual plan according to Hilda, was that Juliet would be going to Johannesburg, South Africa to live with her aunt, um, Henry's sister, who ran a boarding school. Hilda and Jonathan would likely remain in New Zealand with Bill, and Henry would go to London to secure a new job. Now, at this point, it's unclear if the kids would join Henry later, if Hilda was staying in New Zealand. It's very unclear. Right. Pauline, of course, had nothing to do with it, but it seems as if the the Holmes, Holmes gave her hope that she might be going Pauline's journals, while likely full of fancy because she's a young girl who doesn't want to leave her friend, Mm -hmm. state that on multiple occasions, Mrs. Holm asked her if she thought she'd like England, implied they would be staying together, and Henry had even offered to pay her way. Like he told someone else he'd offered to pay her way. 
So I'm sure this was to keep the peace. Mm-hmm. I'm sure this was to keep Juliet calm, but it did not do any good for the mindset of these girls. Right. Who, in contrast, knew that Nora was never letting Pauline leave. Mm-hmm. So she became absolutely certain. She never asked, although I'm pretty sure that Pauline or that Nora would have said no. She never did ask if she if she could go. Mm-hmm. They just made assumptions, and she started to become depressed. Pauline did. She started to think about suicide. And then starting on April 28th, she got a different idea. I'm going to read some of her diary entries. April 28th. Life seems so much not worth the living and death, such as an easy way out. Wait, life seems so much not worth the living and death, such an easy way out. Anger against mother boiled up inside me as it is she who is one of the main obstacles in my path. Suddenly, a means of ridding myself of this obstacle occurred to me, if she were to die. The next day, I did not tell Deborah of my plans for removing mother. I have made no definite plans yet, as the last fate I wish to meet is one in Borstal. I think that's where like a... Prison is or something? I am trying to think of some way. I do not want to, to... I do not want to go to too much trouble, but I want it to appear either a natural or accidental death. That doesn't go well. The day after that, Pauline finally told Deborah of her plans to murder her mother. She wrote, she is rather worried, but does not disagree violently. The next month, so May, was spent with the girls continuing to plan their escape to America. Now, they've changed their plans now, and South Africa is just a stop along the way. They'll still be going. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Pauline almost commits a burglary to get the rest of their money. Okay. Um, but when she saw a policeman, decided not to do it, which is good, I guess. Right. Um, now, it, then in early June, <laughs> we're starting to see a bit of a spiral. They became convinced they were telepathic from her journal, from Pauline's journal. Okay. We went to sleep at 4.30 tomorrow morning after talking all night. Now, this may be why they're spiraling. They're not sleeping. Right. We were discussing at first how we sometimes had a strange feeling that we had done what we were doing before. Yes, that happens to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. it's a glitch in the matrix. We realized why this was and why Deborah and I have such extraordinary telepathy. I did it again. Telepathy. 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 Thank you, dear. And why people treat us and look at us the way they do and why we behave as we do. It is because we are mad. We are both stark staring, raving mad. There is definitely no doubt about it. We are thrilled by the thought. But something else was happening as well. Sex and the saints were often on their minds. And after seeing the movie Five Fingers, starring Orson Welles, it, mm-hmm. it's very likely their relationship became sexual. I'm going to read a few entries. And I, it's up to the reader and the, the listener to determine what they think. Because it's kind of up in the air. It may not be sexual. It may be something else. To me, it seems very sexual. June 11th, 1954. We were then driven out to see It in Trent's last case. It was the first time I had ever seen It. We're talking about Orson Welles. Deborah had always told me how hideous he was, and I had believed her, though from his photos he did not look too bad. It is appalling. He is dreadful. I have never in my life seen anything that... So, in the same category of hideousness... Hideousness. But I adore him. We returned home and talked for some time about it, getting ourselves more and more excited. Eventually, we enacted how each saint would make love in bed, only doing the first seven as it was 7.30 a.m. by then. 
We felt exhausted and very satisfied. Yeah, that sounds pretty sexual to me. Yeah, right? That's the first one. June 14th. It was wonderful, heavenly, beautiful, and ours. We felt very satisfied indeed. We have now learned the peace learned the peace of the thing called bliss, the joy of this thing called sin. June 16th. We came to bed late and spent a very hectic night. It was wonderful. We only did 10 saints altogether, but we did them thoroughly. <laughs> I prefer doing the longer ones. We enjoyed ourselves greatly and intend to do so again. We did not get to sleep until about 5.30. That's pretty hot. Yeah. I mean, if you're a 16-year-old, 15-year-old girl and a 16-year-old girl and you've been smooching and stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, they were all worried that this was gonna ha- that sex was going to happen between these girls. And it's happened. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't care because I live in 2019 and I have never cared about lesbianism. But they were trying to keep these girls apart so this wouldn't happen. And then it happened. So, I mean, at least it seems like it happened. Yeah. So anyway, soon after. But there's strong evidence. <laughs> there's very strong evidence. Yeah. So now is when we start to hear about moiter. Moiter. Moiter is hard to say. Why are we even saying it that because way? Because this is how they talk about it in the journals. Okay. They spell it M-O-I-D-E-R. And they would jokingly say, moiter, moiter. Like, but they would say it like a Brooklyn accent. Right. So moiter, moiter. Yeah. We're going to go out and get a, commit a moiter. But it's totally, I think that's just how people used to jokingly say murder. Mm-hmm. Moiter. So they they said they would write operas and produce their own films in England, and they would moiter all the odd wives who got in their way. As they planned their fake moiters, it became clear that Pauline was ready to enact her months-old idea. It escalated from an idea to a plan pretty dang quickly. That escalated quickly. Now, the murder happens, the moiter happens on the 22nd of June. On the 19th of June is the first plan thing first discussion and this is the diary entry our main idea for the day was to mortar moiter mother this notion is not a new one but this time it is a definite plan which we intend to carry out we have worked it out carefully and are both thrilled by the idea naturally we feel a trifle nervous but the pleasure of anticipation is great i shall not write the plan down here as i shall write it up after we carry it out i hope We both spent last night and the one before having a simply wonderful time in every possible way. We also planned a few odd pictures and recast most of the Saints' Christmas. We burnt all our film books this evening. Not sure why. June 21st, Monday. I rose late and helped Mother vigorously this morning. Deborah rang and we decided to use a rock in a stocking rather than a sandbag. We discussed the moiter fully. I feel very keyed up, as though I were planning a planning. A surprise party. Mother has fallen in with everything beautifully, and the happy event is to take place tomorrow afternoon. So next time I write in this diary, Mother will be dead. How odd, yet how pleasing. Last journal entry. Nope. Last journal entry, June 22nd. The day of the happy event is the title. I am writing a little of this up in the morning before the death. I felt very excited and the night before Christmas-ish last night. I did not have pleasant dreams, though. I am about to rise. So, the day of the murder, Moiter, Pauline was very angelic to her mother, as she had been the day before, taking care to ensure her mother would be up for an afternoon stroll with her and Juliet. She helped prepare lunch and didn't mouth off or cause trouble. Juliet had been given a ride to the Reaper house to join them for lunch before the stroll, bringing along the half-brick from her house. According to Bill Perry, she'd been in a very gay mood, which means happy. 
and her mother said she'd seem radiantly happy and very calm. As Nora put the finishing touches on dinner, the girls went upstairs and prepared the weapon, placing the half brick in the stocking. They ate lunch with the family, Bert and Wendy, coming... They ate lunch with the family. Bert and Wendy came home from work. I think that's how people used to do it. They used to come home from work to eat lunch. Mm -hmm. Afterward, Nora, Pauline, and Juliet headed to Victoria Park, stopped the tea room, and headed down the trail. I'm not going to redo that one. We all know what happens there. After they'd walked for about an hour, about a half an hour, Nora, a heavier woman who got very little exercise, said she was done and it was time to go back. It was then that the plan was put into action. Pauline walked behind her mother. Juliet, who'd been walking ahead, dropped a pink stone on the ground and called out to Mrs. Reaper and Pauline. As Mrs. Reaper bent down to look at the stone, Pauline hit her in the head with a brick. With the brick. The girls had thought that would be all it would take, but as we know, that is, it's a lot more than just one blow to the head to kill you. Nora fought back, putting her hands up, so Pauline continued to bash her over the head. The girls forced Nora to the ground, and Juliet took over beating her. When the stocking broke, Pauline once again picked up the brick, and Juliet held Nora down as her daughter beat her until she was dead. They attempted to drag her and roll her down the bank to make it look like more of an accident, but she was dead weight. In all, Nora had 45 external injuries, 24 to her head and face. Wow. And at least a handful of those went all the way down to her skull. Before the men returned from finding Nora's body, the girls were already back at Ilum. As you know, we've, mm-hmm. she was there picked up. It was there that the Holmes went into protection mode. Bill Perry took the girls' coats to the dry cleaners immediately, and the adults began to get the girls' stories so they could tell the police what happened. Hilda searched for Juliet's diaries, looking through them to find any evidence that the girls were involved. It's pretty likely she found some Mm -hmm. because she took a few of those journals and asked the groundskeeper to burn them. The police pretty much knew from the beginning (laughs) that this was not an accident. Um, It was pretty clear. Their claim that Nora had fallen and hit her head over and over again made no sense. And were allowed... And she had defensive wounds. Like, I mean, it was clear. Yeah. It wasn't... They didn't do... They didn't plan this well. And they were children. So they didn't know that it wouldn't go easily. They came to Ilum to question the girls and were allowed to speak to them without lawyers or adults present, despite the fact that the adults had taken their stories. Right. I, again, I don't understand the Holmes at all. They're stupid. Um, it didn't, and also the police didn't think they'd get to talk to the to the girls. They thought they would knock on the door and the and everybody would be like, "You can't talk to the girls." What girls? <laughs> no, they just thought you can't talk to them without a lawyer. That's right. what they thought. Yeah. They, I mean, the homes were very prestigious. They were the rect- it was the rector and the rector's wife, right. you know. Um, it didn't take long, though, once they started to talk to the girls for their stories to change, right? Juliet basically said, I had nothing to do with the murder, but I, I'm pretty sure that Gina had done it. Da, 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 da. Pauline decided that that was the story she would go with. So she's like, yeah, I beat the hell out of my mom. Uh, I don't care. Da, 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 da. And Deborah had nothing to do with it. So they took her off to jail. And while she was sitting there, she started writing a journal entry on a, on a piece of paper. And this is that entry. All the Hulms have been wonderfully kind and sympathetic. Anyone would think I've been good. I've had a pleasant time with police talking ni- 19 to the dozen and behaving as though I had a care in the world. I haven't had a chance to talk to Deborah properly, but I am taking the blame for everything. Well, the police wanted to know what she wrote. So they picked up the piece of paper and read it. And it was clear that... <laughs> Juliet had probably been involved. So they confronted Pauline, asking her if the note meant that Juliet was involved because they wanted to make sure. And Pauline, instead of being like, no or yes, 
She said, let, let Deborah and I get together and have a discussion. I'm sure she'll go along with anything I say. And they were like, no, we're not going to let you talk to her. <laughs> and so I think, and I think that the author thought this too, um, that Pauline wrote this note on purpose. Mm-hmm. She wanted Juliet to be involved. She didn't want to do this alone. Right. Now, on the other side of town, Juliet agrees. She had come to the conclusion that Gina being in jail and and her not having any consequences and being off scot-free was not okay. She wanted to tell them the truth. Because in April, when they first started talking about this, well, who knows when they first started talking about it. Right. They decided that they would sink or swim together. This was a straight-up pact. This is not a case of turning on each other. This is a case of going into it 100% together. So... She, the cops come over. She tells him everything. Not exactly. Right. I mean, but she tells him that basically, yeah, I was involved and yeah, we planned it. And yeah, this is something that we're definitely both involved in. And what are you going to do? And so they take her to jail and they put him in the same cell and they sit all up all night and talk about normal shit. Probably the saints, probably mm-hmm. the gods. They don't. They, they practiced the saints all night long. <laughs> they didn't talk about the murder. They just, they didn't cry. They didn't wine they just slept and hung out now it was a trial when things started to get a little fucking weird now this whole case has been weird but the trial itself went off the rails a little bit it was way too it went way more off the rails than a couple of girls sneaking out at night and right drinking wine and riding horses um they really wanted to focus on the fourth world world they wanted to focus on this possible lesbianism they wanted to focus on all this stuff now the reason for this the reason that this ended up being becoming the focus it probably would have been a straight case but the defense lawyers wanted to do a case of insanity guilty by not guilty by reason of insanity but their way of saying it is that the girls because the girls had a fake religion had their own religion they thought they were above the law that's the insanity they're trying to to plead and it doesn't make any fucking sense like and both the girls are like "Mm mm-mm but also, during the trial, the stuff about Nicholas came out, mm-hmm. and apparently, Juliet was pissed. <laughs> apparently, there was not a bunch of discussion about Nicholas, or maybe she thought the, the relationship with Nicholas was very different than what it was, uh-huh. but apparently, Juliet was not happy that Pauline had been having <laughs> sex with this boy. You got laid and I didn't? Uh, I think- This bullshit. There was this idea that, that maybe she was like, how dare you- care for anyone but me sort of a thing right. but anyway so they were both they were convicted of murder they were not found not guilty by reason of insanity obviously they clearly did it they planned it there's proof of planning there's proof of you know whatever uh so they were char- they were convicted of the murder but because they were underage and this is a pl- thing that we don't have in the u.s um they were sentenced to an indeterminate time which is called at her majesty's pleasure so okay. They were, they were booked at Her Majesty's pleasure, which means that they could spend the rest of their lives in jail or they could spend two years in jail. Now, gotcha. in this case, they were both released in five years. That seems short. Well, it's par- partially to do with their ages and partially to do with the fact that they were, I guess. They were good. They were probably well-behaved young. Well, they were well-behaved. They're good girls, Brant. <laughs> and they showed, they showed enough remorse probably for the time. Like, I don't think it would be the same like now if you, if you killed your parents and then we're like i won't ever do it again they're like oh okay that's good enough and now it'd be like oh you won't huh you will thank you (laughs) but they won't they will not go on to kill anyone ever again um not physically um so they're gonna go on to kill somebody not physically well you'll see in a second 
Uh, Juliet, so both were released five years later with Juliet with no conditions and Pauline with probation Um, for many years. That's classist. It was largely thought that the condition of the release was that they could never have contact again, but that is not true. Uh, That's actually in Heavenly Creatures. They say that and it is not true. Um, after their sentences, Thanks, Peter Jackson. <laughs> after their sentences were complete, um, completely complete, both women left the public eye, or so it was thought. In the early 1990s, as heaven, as the production of Peter Jackson's Heavenly Creatures was coming to an end, and it was about to be released, journalist Lynn Ferguson decided to track down Juliet Hume. Apparently, it was pretty fucking easy. Anne Perry, a mystery novelist. She killed people in print. Get it? I gotcha. Okay. Uh, living in Scotland, had Juliet's date of birth, and her mother was listed as H. Marion Perry, Hilda Marion Perry, uh, and her father as Walter Perry, who was actually Bill Perry, but I don't know why she... But she had changed her name and, right. to Anne Perry. So Her photograph also looked an awful lot like an older Juliet. Uh, Ferguson rang up Perry's agent, saying she thought that Anne Perry was home, was Hume, and at first, the agent thought she was crazy. You've got the wrong woman. There's no way. Agent called up Perry. She said, you've got to put a kibosh on this. Perry says, can't. It's me. <laughs> um, it uprooted her life a little bit at first. I mean, we're talking the 90s. So we're talking right. 40 years. But the author took it in stride and now kind of embraces it, which is weird, in my opinion. Um it's clear, though, that she has no remorse. Yeah. She has, they've asked her if she has remorse, and she says, why would I? Or they say, do you feel bad about killing about killing Nora Reaper? And she says, why would I? I hardly knew her. <laughs> wow. Yeah. She's a fucking sociopath. Yeah. And, like, this, now, she's still alive, so I'm not going to, she's probably a fine woman, but she's definitely got some narcissistic qualities and definitely isn't as you won't. She's not a lovey-dovey lady. She's not a remorseful lady. Right. Uh, she's given many interviews about the crime since her identity was revealed, in which she usually pushes off the crime as helping her pathetic friend, which is kind of crappy and what you would have thought would have happened right afterwards, but they've had many years apart. So now it's she doesn't have that loyalty that she used to have. Right. Did um, they ever find Pauline? Now they have. Okay. Pauline has been found. Um, uh, my thing is, here is, she Ann Perry likes the spotlight, but the right. wo- but the woman formerly known as Pauline Parker is not interested in the spotlight. I do know her name, but I'm not going to give it here. People, you, if you want it, you can find it. It's not hard to find, but I don't want to contribute to that. She does not want to be talked to. She people have tried to interview her, and she like she, she like races like runs people off the property with a shotgun. She was she, she wants nothing to do with this. And you crap. know she'll use it. You know she will. She'll at least use the butt end of it right, right in your skull forty four times. Um. She, uh, neither woman ever married um, Pauline, but Pauline, it seems that Pauline has once found a partner because she's listed as having sustained a long-term relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, they spoke to someone with her last name who was a woman who didn't live in the same house as her, but it's possible that they had had a, you know, an arrangement. Um, but it's not clear if that was her partner or if it was somebody else. Right. If it was male or female, it's unclear. It doesn't really matter. Um, but it is interesting to think about the fact that they never married. Either one of them ever married. Um, however... It was Nicholas. Maybe it was Nicholas. Who knows? And they just never got married because because Juliet threatened if they ever got married. That <laughs> She'd come and she, yeah. beat him with a, with a half a brick. Yep. So, but pictures... T- this is one of the things I think is really interesting. Pictures taken from a, a former home of Pauline show that some of her artwork on the walls and windows that was tastefully done, it wasn't like graffiti, right. um, portrays two girls, 
one with white hair and kind of a shining disposition or, you know, shininess around her. And one dark and kind of below and things like that in various fantasy type scenarios. It seems to me that even if she got over her relationship, she never lost that that bit of her past. That was always something she held on to. And I think that it's really something. Mm-hmm. I have People wonder if they've ever been in contact with each other. I'm sure they haven't. When people commit a murder together like that, mm-hmm. they don't talk to each other ever again. Once, that, once they've been separated from each other. You see this all the time. We talked about um, David and what, what was her name? The kids, the the military kids, oh, yeah, who killed that girl together, and then yeah. as soon as they were separated from each other, they were they turned on each other, and they never spoke to each other ever again. Mm-hmm. Um, people who do this kind of thing, it breaks you, and it, I think that's what happened to these two. I think it, I think there, Anne is fine. Like Anne Perry is living her best life right. as a as an author. She's written a ton of books. I tried to read one of her books. I just didn't have the time. And do you have it downloaded? I'm definitely going to read it. Um, She's she's written like forty novels. Good like for her. The, the, like she really was gonna be a writer as yeah. a kid. Like she she showed that and it went on. I don't know. It's clear that that Pauline is an artist. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's she's cut herself off. I'm sure her family doesn't speak to her. She killed her fucking mom. Right. You know she's probably she's had it worse. Yeah, no doubt. She's had it worse. I, I'm sure. There is a quote though from from her sister Wendy. Saying that Wendy thinks that, her, that Wendy's life has been worse because she was never able to get away from it. People still contact her and say, "Tell, give us, inf- tell us something. How's your sister? Tell us about the the murder. That kind of because she never got to change her name, right? You know where Pauline did. So yeah, that that would suck to be a sibling of somebody, a, a murderer who murdered your mother. Yeah, like hey, let's bring up painful memories all of the time yeah. forever. Yeah. But that is... I bet she dreads uh, unknown number phone calls more than I do. I'm sure she does. It's one of those things where it's, you almost feel bad for doing a story on it. But it's been a very long time. And yeah. people have been harassing them for years. That this isn't going to be con- con- contributing. But I just don't, I don't really want to bring up Pauline's name. Because I, I don't want anybody to get shot. Yeah. <laughs> Some idiot goes on her, la- on her well, land and... Plus, she changed her name for a reason. You yeah. know? I mean, leave I wouldn't her, leave her alone. If Anne Perry wasn't hadn't, hadn't embraced the fact that she is Juliet Hume, I don't think I would have said her name either. But it's pretty, it's out there. Mm-hmm. So it's, I mean, the book I read is literally called Anne Perry and the Crime of the Century, right? So or the Murder of the Century, or whatever. So it's it's and it's a good book. I recommend it if you if you want to read it. It's very dense though. It took me a long time to get to this book because it's it, one of the reasons that the, that this uh, podcast episode was two months in the making. Yeah. The whole the home family is the focus of that book more than anybody, and I, it's because of I think it's because of him. There's so many chapters about Henry. I'm like, he didn't kill anybody. <laughs> I mean, he killed a bunch of people. If he's part of the Manhattan Project, it killed a bunch of people. But you know, like, yeah, but not directly. It's just uh, and Hilda, oh, fuck Hilda, man. She, but the funny thing is, is that Anne lives near her near, near Hilda. That's weird. like they're, they're. I think Hilda. She maybe have passed now, but I mean. She would be very old if she was still alive. But, yeah. like, it's certainly, like, the fact that she moved to her mom 
shows a I think that's what people do. They go to the parent who they who they try they want to win over. <laughs> you know, they don't go to the parent who they who although Henry like Henry left New Zealand and never went back. Uh-huh. As soon as as soon as he had to start his new job, he took Jonathan and left and they he never went back. I don't think he ever even visited his daughter in jail, but Bert never, ever visited Pauline, but I can imagine that has less to do with the fact that she murdered his wife. Yeah. He, uh, he moved to Australia and became best friends with a guy named Sess <laughs> and drove a taxi, oh, became communist. 40 years earlier. Yeah. <laughs> that's a reference to Franny Fisher, if anyone doesn't know. But that's that. That's, that's uh, Juliet Hulme and Pauline Parker. All right. Oh, that one was that one was pretty interesting. Yep. When you said it was an old case, I thought it was going to be like you know, and ev- now everyone's dead because it was nope. so long ago. It's pretty it's long ago. Pretty but long it, ago, but people aren't stubborn and stay alive longer. Well, they're you know fifty. Thanks, they're young. Both no, they're both oh way older than our parents. Yeah. Well, they were like what? No, they're in their eighties now. Uh huh. Yeah, they'd be was... in their eighties now. Ninety. Yeah. No, not ninety. Eighty. Eighty last year. Uh huh. They would have been. Yep. Eighty-one this year then. So. Yep. Yep. So that's that. Yeah. If you want to send us your feedback, you can email us at thebasementhosts at gmail dot com. If you want to get a hold of us on Instagram, it's into the basement podcast, or you can find us on Twitter at into the basement. Um. Other than that, rate and review us on anything you listen to us on. Um, listen to all the other anchor podcasts if you could find them. I don't know what they are. And uh, thank you again for listening to Into the Basement. Bye. Bye.